0: Thank you. All right, all right, all right, all right. We are about ready to begin, but could we start by a round of applause for the delicious breakfast this morning? Thank you, ladies, in the kitchen. I Don't even know if they can hear me, but so I'm going to open in prayer, and we will get started. May the Lord be with you. Dear Lord, I thank you for a beautiful morning uh, to dive into your word as well as to worship and fellowship and to gather at the at, for prayer and everything that we gather for this morning. And I would pray that as we look at Paul's letter to the Colossians, kind of an overview of the entire letter, that you would speak to us about what he was concerned about and what he was writing about and then what we, all of these years later, can still take from the words that he penned to that church in Colossae. But we thank you for just the opportunity to do this and that you would speak to us through it and be with us now as we look to the scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if it seems, is this too loud? Should I turn it down a little bit? We're good? Okay. I had no turn it downs, but I, I saw if I talked too loud, some quick reactions. So I'll try not to get too excited. But I thought about it to the letter. We've had... Um, we, the Colossians epistle in our lectionary the past three weeks, and we have a snippet of chapter four next week. So I figured for an offhand rector's forum, why don't we just look at the overview? Because it doesn't give it all, give it the whole thing to us in the lectionary. It's just snippets of each chapter, but we can talk about the overlay. Uh, we won't go too specific, and you'll hear some that you heard a little bit introduced in the sermon last week, but this is more like the uh, the 30,000-foot view, if you would, of, of Colossians. But I tried to figure out a good opening illustration as to what Paul had in mind as he wrote this letter to that church in Colossae. Some people saw it, call it Colossae. Some say Colossae, but so you know, it's the church written to the Colossians by Paul. And in what, when I was in college, I was pretty notorious for doing um, overnight road trips trying not sleeping not very smart and they have these things in West Texas as well as other places that if you happen to be dozing off when you are driving you'll start getting over and there's these little bumps in the road and they do this really loud and it wakes you up and if you happen to start dozing off for the purpose of keeping you in the, on the road and in the middle of the lines. Well, that is what Paul is doing with this book. He is, try, or with this letter that he has written, he is trying to keep the young Colossian church on the right road, and if they get too far off, as we will hear, and it will wake them up and keep them on the right path. So I thought, Maybe you could relate to that as we begin to dive into Colossians. Now the design of the book and this is a little bit of the context and history into what Paul is writing into, there is the the church in Colossae at this moment is thriving. It's a growing church but it has been threatened by things that would try to get them to swerve away from the main thing or staying on the right road. And I, I got to say, there's, churches today are tempted with this same thing. In the, in the day and age in which we live, how many times have you seen churches grapple with things that might try to take them away from the main thing? So this is something we're always going to wrestle with as the church. So I'm one of the reasons I'm thankful for the words of Paul to see how he was addressing it and how we can go back to that foundation when we find ourselves... In, in the same type of situations. But there's temptation everywhere, as we always know, at, for individually and as the whole church. So the Colossians were, at that moment, I said they were thriving, they're following Jesus. And they were living into the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecy. Although the majority of the people that lived in Colossae were actually Gentiles, but they were still living into the Old Testament messianic uh, prophecy. And Paul was telling them, don't swerve. And this is why he, he was saying that. The main, his main focus of the book, all you need is Jesus. And there are other voices out there competing, trying to make them swerve from that reality. So I called it last week in the sermon, the Gnostic heresy. And that was more specific towards chapter two that we were dealing with last week in the le- lectionary. But there was a kind of s- a syncretism of belief systems that is threatening this young church in Colossae. So first there was the, the it's either known by scholars as the, the Colossian heresy or the Gnostic heresy. It was a hybrid belief system from a number of different strange strains, causing them to potentially swerve off the road. So one part of that syncretism of belief systems that was challenging them was Jewish legalism. And we have heard how Paul dealt with that before in Galatians, such as the writings of the acts of circumcision to keep the law of Moses. And if you've studied Galatians, remember how Paul dealt with that in the past. That's part one. Uh, Part two of the... The false belief system was the the Gnostic mysticism, which we're going to talk about more in depth in just a moment. And then the third was a religious asceticism. And if you know what that is, it's if I deny myself by my own power certain things in my life that I like, um, then... God will love me more or like me more, and I've done well. That's what's known as religious religious asceticism. It's all about us and not what God has done for us. So those three things is what Paul is writing to. As we get into the text that he wrote, he is challenging these belief systems that have kind of come together in a hodgepodge that was making the people say, uh, Coming coming up to the Colossians in this church in Colossae and saying, well, you've got the foundation of Jesus, but we've got something even better. Building upon that and trying to steer them away from it. Hence the words of Paul as we will get into them. Now, the Gnostics... Um, Let's see, late, later Judaism and early Christianity, there was a sect of Gnostics, it was known as Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, and that, that word translates to knowledge, and you believed spiritual, spirit, everything of the spiritual was good, and everything that was material was bad. This was the central tenet in philosophy of Gnosticism founded on knowledge, and God couldn't have created the material world because it was inherently evil. Because it was material, and God, being spirit at the time, uh, known to them that way, God couldn't be creator or create anything that would gnostic or that would be inherently evil. So. God being a human being and them now coming to the understanding of the young church being Jesus and all you need is Jesus and what he had done for them. How in the world could God step into flesh? It didn't make any sense to their, their central philosophy. So some of them believed, and it is in some of the different ways that this manifests, some believe Jesus only looked like a human but was not actually a human. And Jesus, when he would walk on the beach, wouldn't leave footsteps, and he was a, a phantasm or a phantom of some sort. And, but uh, he didn't really have a material body, is, is some of the argument they would try to make. And kind of weird thoughts. And when it came to the Jesus being creator, as Paul will talk about in a moment, there were lesser gods that just emanated from God and that became so far removed from God that's that that's how a, a much uh, removed from God person, a demigod or sorts or a semi-god was a creator of the world. And that's kind of a, a loophole that they found with how could God be in the form of a human and material and yet create something material if it was just going to end up Um, being evil. So, and this is, if you've ever read 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, that that is also attacking this Gnostic reality and philosophy, and because that's running rampant at the time that that letter was written as well. So here's, and here's some also some background, um, some things about Colossi. Paul never actually visited as far as we know this. We've heard of his three missionary journeys where he ran, went around and actually visited some places. Paul never visited as far as we know. And he he actually did not start the church in that city. But as we will read, people came to where Paul was preaching and teaching and took it back. And we'll hear the actual, in the opening of Colossians, we'll hear who that was. Uh, and, I, and he did go... Uh, let's see, in that city, he did go to a place called Ephesus and the the guy we're about to hear about heard Paul preaching the gospel and Christ crucified and what it meant for them and took it all the way back and then planted the church. So Paul never visited. And then he spent three years in Ephesus and this is where the, the message was heard that traveled to Colossae. The whole region heard the gospel during this time Colossae was 100 miles inland from Ephesus, part of the region known as Phrygia in the Roman area of Asia Minor, located in the Lycus Valley. So kind of a neat hearing how it it spread and then how it wound up going to Colossae. Now somebody came to visit, like we talked about uh, Paul while he was in Ephesus that was from Colossae in the house of Tyrannus, or also known as the school of Tyrannus, where Paul was a teacher and his name was Epaphras. He was the gentleman from Colossae. He had a transformed heart through hearing Paul do his thing and then he ended up being the founding church planter or pastor of this church that Paul is writing to. And then because the reason Paul writes the whole letter to the Colossians was these prevailing belief systems that were challenging the message that Paul was putting out there. Now the we know the four um, the four epistles that Paul wrote while he was in, in jail or in prison was Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians. And so somewhere between 60 and 62, A.D. Epaphras travels to um, Paul to see him in prison in Rome. And this is where he goes and he says, we've got some problems. The church that I planted is being threatened by all of these um, prevailing things that would challenge what you taught me and what we have. Fed the foundation of the church in Colossae was founded. Uh, Colossae was founded on. So Paul writes the letter after he has some conversations with the gives it to him. And he takes it back to the church to be read very similarly to how we do in the first part of all of our services. The the service of the word before we have the word, the service of the sacrament is based upon how these letters and the text would be opened and studied. So it's a pretty neat thinking back to that tradition. So as we begin to focus in on the text and the the chapters of the letter, we dive into, there's really, there's four chapters and there's four overarching themes, but if I had to, it doesn't really, it, it helps us in study today, but sometimes getting into the depth of the letter as it was written, the chapter and verse system sometimes doesn't break up just, just rightly, and we have... Uh, In 1227, an Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langdon, was the one who put that earlier system in to make it easier for for us to read today. So, and it doesn't actually break down the themes I'm about to share as uh, chapter one and it's the first theme. In chapter two, it's not as clean as that, although it is pretty close. So, four sections and the themes. One is the personal extremely personal. 2 is doctrinal, 3 is practical, and 4 is relational. How Paul's letter will flow as he opens up and closes. So in chapter 1 we will begin with how we see it's personal in its intercession. It's prayer that Paul opens up up with. And in most of his letters, if you've ever studied Paul, would it be the intro was always normally a prayer that was extremely personal to the group that he was writing to and or if he happens to be lucky enough to be there with them. And he let them know what he has been praying for specifically for them on that church or uh, what they are dealing with and how he has been praying into it and against it. So it opens up in verse one saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And this is where he gives thanksgiving and personal prayer of intercession for them. Verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid upon you in heaven. On this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Now, we're hearing of, as he is writing, the fruit of the work of both he in preaching what is going on and especially of Epaphras, who had a changed heart by the teaching of Paul and took it back to Colossae. Now, when we consider, especially in this state that we live in, when we find fruit, what do we also find with fruit? Stickers. Stickers. Huh? Huh? That Yeah, fruit flies. fruit flies, we, yes, that's, the, and it's an interesting illustration Paul is using. In my house, when we, we keep the oranges, the bananas, and all out, kind of in a shelf where the kids can go and get it whenever they want most of the time, and there's fruit flies all over the place. We we, we can seal everything up, and they get there. The point of that being, Paul has just talked about spiritual fruit, but fruit attracts bugs. Truth impacts uh, truth that impacts our lives. For other people, it's not so well, well-meaning. And then you may come around and get bugged. And if you turn on a light, what else happens? The bugs flock right to it. Those are illustrations of what Paul is tackling with those belief systems as we're about to hear as he opens up in that personal way. Verse 9 says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, and this is actually direct language confronting the heresies. It's God's will, and it's it's a a, a good prayer to think about Paul praying for them that you would know God's will for you today. On a personal level and across life, and in that prayer, we heard the key words knowledge, wisdom. Remember, gnosis, <laughs> and he's using he's using the found, the foundation of all wisdom to confront them, and then spiritual understanding. We we heard him say that directly. So Paul is. On purpose, using these these key buzzwords that would really uh, not make the Gnostics happy, and that they used all the time, and it's tied into a deeper knowledge that would be initiated uh, for you to have that as well. So it's it's actual terminology that is found in in Christ and in in Paul teaching upon Christ, and yet the Gnostics and the the other competing philosophies were were trying to. Act Christian, but steer away from the main message. And so kind of something for us to study out of that and to really think about is this is why it's so important to study the word. Because we can have very similar vocabulary with other denominations or teachings within the church, and yet we might all be using different dictionaries. We may say one word and then a church may have two different churches or more may have very different understandings of what that different dictionaries for the vocabulary that is being used. So let's see. So the second section actually starts in chapter one as well. And I'll stop. I know I'm going through this pretty quickly for timing's sake. We've talked about the personal, and we're about to go to the second theme of doctrinal information. But does anyone have any questions or comments to this point? Keep on going. All right. So verse 15 starts the switch to the second theme in chapter one, which is now we're going to the doctrinal and this is this is really where, where everything is is housed, the main meaning in which the other themes flow out of that, that we will talk about. But let's see we in chapter 1 verse 15, puts, it puts Jesus in his proper place and it's actually a poem that Paul has put together and, and it's the main heart of it is Jesus is God the deity of Christ and exalts him. And then why was he writing a poem about the very essence of the Trinity? And in fact, and who Jesus was within that and in God's rightful place. Remember that main, it's to speak into and against the heresies that are challenging the church. Um, So what was the second one? Second one is the doctrinal. It's the second theme that that starts at the end of the first chapter. So we hear in verse 15, and listen to the poem of everything we just said, the main theme of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If you really listen to that, you hear the spiritual and the material coming together. Not the prevailing thing that's challenging one over here and the other over here, never to be joined good and evil, but they have come together in the person of Christ. And I thought I got a little chance to do a little show and tell anybody know what this is. This is an icon uh, from this was the pilgrimage I have got to go on was the missionary journeys of Paul and this is actually an icon from Greece of Paul himself as we're thinking about this mornings. But I, I, I keep this on the shelf in my office for the meaning that this is the image that Paul is, it not his image, but of Christ. Um, icon or icon means an image, a representation or a copy, an exact representation. And what we're hearing is that Jesus is an icon for God, the actual very copy stamped on God, invisible, stamped on creation uh, and through the person of Jesus, the image that we have. So I thought that was a a neat little tie in that I've got Paul on an icon. And yet the, the language that he has just used is talking about the face of God in Christ being stamped upon creation. Or the the original and most important icon, if you will. So, and he also says, you have seen me, and you have seen the Father. Even through, se- even though separate, one in purpose and one true God, God invisible, stamped on creation. You hear him also use the words firstborn over all creation, and as the. As the uh, prevailing people that were challenging the teachings of Paul, they would love to take, try to take advantage of that firstborn over all creation. Because God was born, he's an inherently evil, and therefore playing right into our belief system that we're trying to rob you with. And today there are cults that will still try to do this that will take firstborn and say that God was actually born and not begotten here before all things. And they'll try to uh, get to the heart of the meaning of that and and take you off the track of the right believing of it. But God, God, no God would be born. The Greek word here that, that they use is protonikos, which means first in rank. Not actually born, but that God that we have been talking about. Paul is putting God in his, with this heavy doctrinal language, he's putting God in his proper place, meaning that he was the first, either chronologically or in hierarchy order um, before any other gods or other things. And this is first, uh, let's see, an example of this is Joseph that had two sons. The firstborn was Manasseh. And then the second was Ephraim. You find this in Jeremiah 31. And he says that Ephraim, his second born chronologically, was actually his first born. Poor the understanding, meaning that he was the most important. So kind of getting into what, what Paul is trying to getting at. It's taken in rank or status to be number one the highest ranking order, whether or not he was born first or not. This is language Paul is using to put um, God and Jesus in their rightful places. Another example is in Exodus, the children of Israel, my firstborn. And then he's also said, my son, in the language of Exodus. The the Israelite, the Exodus, the, The people of Israel, the children, are seen as the highest ranking because they are the ones in the Old Testament God had the covenant with. And we also hear Psalm 89, coming of the Messiah, my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. So it's not firstborn like I have my sons, Jackson and Gabe, and one's gonna be, because he's the oldest, he's the most important. But God being before all things, And then creator of all things is put in his highest hierarchy place. And so that's direct language um, into what he is arguing. And we see he holds the universe together. God does. And he's also the head of the body, the highest, firstborn from the dead, highest rank of the dead, most important one ever. In all things, God is preeminent so this is the sense he's making out of it, out of it, in uh, the heart of it all. God is Creator, pre-existed before and in in before all time. Head of the church, number one, the foundation of it all. Directly attacking the belief system. There's not some second-rate God that makes <laughs> makes he makes the invisible God visible. Hence, the icon. So chapter 2 we head into that and we are still in the doctrinal. This is uh chapter 2 verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Key words, the importance, uh, this is the importance against the backdrop of that Gnosticism and other belief systems that were threatening. Don't need, you don't need, and you got the people coming and trying to say, you don't need, Jesus in himself, and yet Paul directly saying, do all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge have Christ and that is everything you need. Verse four in chapter two says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And then skipping down to verse eight in chapter two, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition." according to the elemental spirit of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's another key word for the Gnostics is pleroma. There's actually today still a neo-Gnostic movement in which they had the word pleroma. The Greek word means a ton to them. In modern day, there is a God called pleroma, which translates to fullness. Come and listen to what we have. You, J, Jesus is not all you need, but we have more. We have a more full life. Do you see how they're trying to still some of the language that, that Paul in Scripture has used before and use it to, to twist it, to try to, to get them to go outside of the, the little bumpy things that do the, the noise? Like, but the, that's what Paul is trying to correct Uh, The fullness of the Godhead is in the Father, Son, and Holy Holy Spirit, and it's all you will ever need in the language of Paul. You are complete in him. In verse 10 in chapter 2, And you have been filled full in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul echoing with an exclamation point once again, all you need is Jesus. Let's see, so that kind of, as we're drilling down to it as well, verse 11 will bring in some of these, uh, some of the systems that were trying to steer the, the young church away. They loved ceremony. Ceremony with the actual, without connecting it to the meaning of what they were going to do. So Paul addresses this in verse 11 of chapter 2. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul, in all of his letters and all of his writings, talked a lot about the law um, in Romans and, and other places. But he also said he's never been justified by the law. The law lets you know that you're in bad shape and in need of salvation. And it shows your need for that not have known Paul would have never known sin unless uh, if it wasn't for the law. And this is a lot of we preach this a lot. And the understanding that the law is not bad, but it has a specific device showing us and pointing us to the Savior. And this is where the message of grace and gospel comes alongside what what the law is. So and and then Paul tells us the debt has been paid by Jesus himself. Once paid, nailed to the cross, Jesus nailed everything you owed to God to the cross. It was paid in full, every obligation complete. And he he wants to make sure the heresies don't rob that message. It's like, this is where we're gonna hang our hat. This is the foundation of everything. And then he says, uh, every enemy... In verse 15, says he's disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph triumph overing them in him. Every enemy is defeated, disarmed, and there is spiritual rank and there is triumph over them. And you you probably have seen in the Roman military system in other countries, how when they go and they'll they'll sack a town or win a battle and then they'll come back and they'll put the full exploit of their rewards. They have brought back treasure, the victory and other things they have found. Sometimes it was other people, prisoners of war, but they would do a parade to show their military might. Well, Jesus is. Or Paul has written in the language about how Jesus has done that against sin. It's like one of those, a parade where Jesus is the victor over all sin in our life by his cross. It's more language and heavy doctrinal language in the theme that Paul is using to put God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in their proper places. Verse 16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Based how he was addressing these rituals, they're not the actual thing that saves you, but they are used by God as tradition, not to be empty, but to point you to the one that, that actually um, it offers you the salvation. So he's saying, basically, baptism is the shadow and Jesus is the substance. And remember the overarching theme that he's speaking into these heresies and why, is why he's making these points. So it is Christ that saves, not the rituals themselves, shadows of the, of the reality, which is Christ. So that brings us to chapter three and to the third theme. Any comments or questions on the doctrinal piece that Paul is writing about? Lots. Huh? Lots. Yeah, yeah, there are. I I don't know if I heard you correctly. Mm -hmm. Okay. The sacrament is irrelevant without Christ. Yes. That's what Paul... Right. And that's why I added the... Um, you know, He's writing to Christians already who have probably heard that the ceremony is the most important thing. And his argument would be that without Christ, it's an empty ritual. So... That's why it's important to, because you, you probably hear that and say, well, what about communion? We just did and we're about to do, or about baptism, you know, our, our two important sacraments. He, um, the understanding of how we would teach it would certainly be without Christ. They might be empty rituals, but we're, uh, we're not arguing in what we would do in a newcomer's or confirmation class, which is the main context of why he's writing, is to keep heresy it's the, the, the Trinity that adds depth in question for me, because yeah. with baptism, I think of that as the Holy Spirit in action, more so than the salvation of Christ. Yeah. And, but remember, it's the outward and the inward, right. and the brain, so... Yeah, that's the beaut- I think that's always been the beautiful part of it. For some people, it's the ritual. And for in the, the Holy Spirit being there with that ritual. And for others, it's what Paul is saying that points them to the, the deeper meaning and foundation of why we even get to do the rituals. All right, the third chapter takes us into off of that heavy doctrinal part into the practical instruction. So giving it, opening it in prayer, giving the high, this, this is why we get to do everything that we get to do. And then we get to go into practical instruction. If then, this is verse three in the third chapter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Be in experience, uh, what that means, a translation of verse three, uh, or chapter three, verses one and two, I should say. Be in experience what you are in grace, or another way to put that. Be in your spiritual growth what you already are in God's grace. And then verse five would say, very practical, put to death. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all, and is in all. So, Paul does this, does this in Ephesians and Colossians. And he goes to the home. If you go throughout the rest of um, the, the practical, he is targeting the, what a family in Rome looks like in, once they have been, hearts have been changed with a family, and every role a family plays by the gospel. And this is a kind of practical instruction. Of, he goes into the home to show what a transformed heart by Christ looks like in the confines of a first century Roman home that has been touched by the gospel. No part of life is not affected. Husbands and fathers, wives, bond servants, um, uh, there's different things that Paul, but the, the overall context of it all is to show what a home looked like when it had been changed by Christ. So I'm kind of cutting that one a little short just for timing, but anything on the practical. We've come through the first three themes, leading us to chapter four and the final, which is relational interaction. So in verse seven of chapter four, Paul lists 11 people or associates. that are a part of his ministry. Ministry is never done alone although it might look like it is. There is always a talented guy or, uh, or a woman uh, that is a team that is surrounded with the resources of God. There are talented people all around us, the resources of God within the church. Paul was brilliant and effective, but he knew he had a team and in his as he's closing out his letter he points to the importance of the team that's around him that knows the same things he's knowing and teaching and shows how it spreads and how everybody has a ministry within the church of one form or another so it's a very important principle to know that we none of us are lone wolves in in the church um, and it's one of those hidden but important things. So in verse 7 in chapter 4, we hear that Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And interesting to know about Tychicus, he joined Paul on his third missionary journey, and Paul describes him as faithful, the greatest ability— and to know the greatest ability is availability to what God would call you to and then empower you for. That just like Tychicus, we can even have that in the church today. He's faithful and it's the, the, ta- the key of that being the greatest ability is not, not possibly a degree or a proper training. Sometimes the, the greatest ability is your availability. In verse nine, we hear, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. If you remember in, other, in Philemon, um, this guy Onesimus, uh, Phile- he actually lived in uh, Colossae, Philemon did, and Onesimus was a criminal. He was a runaway bond servant of Philemon. Onesimus did, and yet he ran to Rome to blend in. Paul found him. The gospel that Paul taught and preached like changed Onesimus, and then Paul led him to Christ. And Paul writes in Philemon, now receive him, not as a slave, but as your brother in Christ. Give him freedom. And here he is in the fourth chapter of this letter in Colossians saying, and remember Onesimus, Onesimus and who he was, and how the gospel changed him. And then he got Philemon to, to set him free for the work of the gospel. I think it's pretty, pretty interesting story there. And then we have Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, the co- cousin of Barnabas, concerning he, whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Mark was, and it's John Mark, was on the first missionary journey with Paul and things got really hard. And he basically, he said, I, I, I miss my mama. And I'm, Paul, I'm leaving this first missionary journey to go home and, and, and be with my family. And he left Paul and Barnabas, and he went home to Jerusalem. In the second missionary journey, um, Barnabas actually went to Paul and said, well, let's go get John Mark. Maybe he'll come back with us. And at that point, Paul said, absolutely not. <laughs> he, he, Paul was a little upset about him leaving the first time there was a split over this between Paul and Barnabas uh, on this guy. But eventually in 2 Timothy, it says that John Mark, he is profitable to me. So we find that Paul found reconciliation with the with, with John Mark. Kind of story comes full from all of the epistles. And we also, in verse 11, in Jesus, who is called justice. Yeah, that's not Jesus Christ, they're Yeshua was a very popular name and just another that that Paul leaned on, a very common Jewish name, Yeshua. And in verse 12, we hear Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That was the original church planter. He opens up with him and also brings it to um it mentions him in the conclusion then we hear in verse 14 luke the beloved physician greets you as does demas so there's more about demas but we're running a little bit tight on time so i want to um, you just see the how he ends talking about the team hearts changed and then being sent out. And he's giving thanks for everybody um, that has had a heart and, and then a hand in um, the ministry in Colossae, as well as in the region and all throughout Paul's time together. So that's a very personable and relatable. So those are the major themes, the opening and intercession and prayer, very personally, the doctrinal heavy meat, the practical living, and then it ends out talking about the personal relationships and how all of them are centered on the foundation of who Christ is, and it, it, it energizes them to be who they are, to share relationship and purpose. So that is the overall, there's much more themes we, we could take out if we did verse by verse or chapter by chapter, but that's the four prevailing themes of Colossians. And very quickly, any comments or questions? Yes? How long did it take to get from Jerusalem to Rome? Jerusalem to Rome, I, I don't actually remember the actual travel. So I'd, act, I'd have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you caught the right train. <laughs> the right train, yeah. Or, a, or airplane, yeah. Or the right wind. But I'm sure it was a long time. But yeah, less on by sh- land, less mm-hmm. by ship, but it's still a long trip. And to think, three missionary journeys all across, and that this one he never went to, but it, somebody else caught it, and that's how I got there. It's a, a neat thing to consider. <laughs> like it's infectious, huh? <laughs> it's, the it's the biggest infection ever. Yeah, in a good way. Hmm. Praise be to pandemic. God for that. Huh? It's a pandemic. Exactly. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah, one Yeah, I just think it kinda of summed up and all I just it just brought a scripture to mind and I don't even know where it is, but that we love because he first loved us. No. And that's kind of just sums everything up. Mm-hmm. That's how we're able to be a church and be together and love each other because Jesus loved us while we were still sinners mm-hmm. died for us. And how these words are still so important for yes. us today. <laughs> And all those different people in that book—all different walks of life, all yeah. different problems—from you know felons and criminals to religious people—and mm-hmm. yet they're all together in love. I think that's pretty cool. Yep. I think that's a great way to end. All together in love. <laughs> Go with God. And if you're if you have been to church or going, we'll we'll see you. <laughs> Justice in mm-hmm.